0: Thank you for listening to this audio resource from Sovereign Hope Church. For those who haven't yet heard, we've finally made our move into our new home in central Missoula. We'd love to see you Sunday mornings at 2010 3rd Avenue West and hope you're blessed by this online resource. Let's pray one more time for this sermon. Uh, Father God, we thank you. We thank you for the words of Jesus. We thank you for the joy that He has in those words, joy that He invites us to share in. God, happiness uh, that he holds out for us. Blessings that last for and carry us into eternity. Lord, help us through your spirit to see and hear and to hold fast to the foundation of our joy that we will be with you in your kingdom because of your, your gracious will. And we pray this in Jesus' name, amen. <clears throat> so, in the massively popular video game Minecraft, which my youngest son Ezra is a huge fan of, uh, the world is made of blocks. And if you don't know what Minecraft is, imagine a virtual world made of Legos. Blocks that fit together. Blocks of dirt and stone and diamond and coal. And you build block houses and you mine and block caves and you avoid block lava. And the people and the animals and the monsters, yes, the monsters that you fight, they are made of blocks too. And in Minecraft, you can build a world, but you can also tear it apart. That's part of what makes it fun for a rambunctious five-year-old. He's very excited about blowing things up and seeing the blocks go everywhere. And so with the correct block shape tool in your blocky hands, you can tear apart everything, everything in the whole world. You could bring it down to nothing except for one thing bedrock and at the bottom of the world there is just one thing that separates you from falling into an endless video game void of nothing where there is no more world and at the bottom there is a layer of indestructible bedrock and it's five blocks thick everything else can be destroyed but the bedrock cannot And today in our passage, we encounter a joyful Jesus who for the sake of his disciples and us today, I'll grab a mic if that continues, Uh, for the sake of his disciples and us today, he reveals the bedrock of a life of joy. And the foundational element that cannot be destroyed and upon which every other aspect of our ability to worship and work coming alongside God in his gospel mission is established. And it's found in verse 20. I'm going to grab the handheld. I don't like that mic anyway. I don't trust anything, Darren. We're just going to go with this. <laughs> um, all right. Jesus reveals the bedrock of our joy. It's the foundational element that can't be destroyed. And it's found in verse 20 of our passage today. And Jesus says this. He says in verse 20, Nevertheless, do not rejoice in this, that the spirits are subject to you, but rejoice that your names are written in heaven. And for followers of Jesus, this is the reordering idea for every success and failure. This is the given. This is the assumption, the foundation, the bedrock. That at the bottom of everything through Jesus, we have joy. And that joy goes on forever in salvation. And so this is our big idea for today. That because Jesus rejoices over our salvation, nothing will stand in the way of our rejoicing forever. And in three sections of our passage today, we're going to see three things. We're going to see that the foundation of our joy is salvation. We're going to see that the foundation of our salvation is God's gracious will. And we're going to see that God's grace is most clearly seen in Jesus. And so with that said, I'd like to read our passage in full uh, one more time today and see how all of this builds together and see what God might have for us here today. So Luke 10, 17 to 24, the 72 returned with joy saying, Lord, even the demons are subject to us in your name. And he said to them, I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven and behold, I've given you authority to tread on serpents and scorpions and over all the power of the enemy and nothing shall hurt you. Nevertheless, do not rejoice in this, that the spirits are subject to you, but rejoice that your names are written in heaven. In that same hour, he rejoiced in the Holy Spirit and said, I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and understanding and revealed them to little children. Yes, Father, for such was your gracious will. All things have been handed over to me by my Father, and no one knows who the Son is except the Father, or who the Father is except the Son, and anyone to whom the Son chooses to reveal him. And then turning to the disciples, he said privately, Blessed are the eyes that see what you see. For I tell you that many prophets and kings desired to see what you see and did not see it, and to hear what you hear and did not hear it. And So last week, as Jonathan preached, the 72 were sent out, and now they have returned. And by all accounts, it appears that their mission trip to go ahead of Jesus towards Jerusalem, proclaiming the king and the kingdom of God, was a great success. All they say about it is, Lord, even the demons are subject to us in your name. And so this was obviously like the high point, the capstone of their trip. This isn't when they were painting walls. This is when they were sharing the gospel and people were responding to it. But let's go back for a second and see what their mission was. Because if the demons are subjected to them at the name of Jesus, and that's like the pinnacle of their success, then it's reasonable to assume that every other part of their trip was a success as well. So Luke 10, 1 through 11, to remind us what their trip was about. After this, the Lord appointed 72 others and sent them on ahead of him, two by two, into every town and place where he himself was about to go. And he said to them, "'The harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. And therefore, pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. Go your way. Behold, I'm sending you out as lambs in the midst of wolves. Carry no money bag, no knapsack, no sandals, and greet no one on the road. Whatever house you enter, first say, "'Peace be to this house.'" And if a son of peace is there, your peace will rest upon him. But if not, it will return to you. And remain in the same house, eating and drinking what they provide for the laborer deserves his wages. Do not go from house to house. Whenever you enter a town and they receive you, eat what is set before you. Heal the sick in it and say to them, the kingdom of God has come near to you. But whenever you enter a town and they do not receive you, go into its streets and say, even the dust of your town that clings to our feet, we wipe off against you. And nevertheless, know this, that the kingdom of God has come near. And so they go. And they tell people about God's kingdom. And the, the, they heal people to show what God's kingdom is like. And when they come back, they return rejoicing. Uh, there is a lot about this trip that they were probably anxious about before they left. Jesus didn't want to sugarcoat what might be difficult. But by putting these disciples in the position where they had to depend on him, where they had to trust in him, rely on him to accomplish their task, Jesus had shown that he knows what he is doing. And he understands the power of his name and the kingdom of God. And so in the midst of their joy... Jesus rejoices with them. The 72 returned with joy, saying, Lord, even the demons are subject to us in your name. And he said to them, I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. So as the kingdom of God was being proclaimed, the kingdom of Satan is falling. As the good news of the gospel goes forward, the bad news of sin and all of its effects are losing their power. And while claiming victory over the spiritual powers of darkness is exhilarating, Jesus in this section takes the opportunity to point to the bedrock where the disciples' joy should rest. And so, this is our first point for today that the foundation of our joy is salvation. So, mission and ministry success is good. It's really good, and Jesus agrees, but salvation is better. Satan losing is good, but our gain of an eternally restored relationship with God is better. Jesus thinks that the object of our focus is important. We should be known by more of what we are for than what we are against. Have you ever heard a phrase like that? Jesus thinks this is important. This is how he puts it in verse 17 to 20. The 72 returns with joy, saying, Lord, even the demons are subject to us in your name. He said to them, I saw Satan falling like lightning from heaven. Behold, I've given you authority to tread on serpents and scorpions and over all the power of the enemy, and nothing shall hurt you. Nevertheless, do not rejoice in this. The spirits are subject to you, but rejoice that your names are written in heaven. So, think again about this trip that the disciples are coming back from. After an experience like that, it would be really easy to drift into thinking that what is most important is all of the things that we can do for God. We need to help him with his mission. And Jesus wants to gently correct that focus. Because when we compare the things that we do for God to the things that God has done for us, there's no contest. The 72, they were obedient to go despite the danger, but it was God who protected them and promises to still protect them in the future from both spiritual attack and earthly attacks from venomous creatures on the road. And the 72, they left with no provision. That took faith, but it was God who provided for their needs with homes to meet in and food to eat. And they proclaimed the kingdom of God. But Jesus revealed what his kingdom is like through miracles and their healing in Jesus' name. And in Jesus' name, the 72 had authority over the demons and the power of the enemy. But it is God who has written their names in heaven and delivered them from hell. And we will try to rest in somebody's achievements. We don't have an option not to. We will try to have our longings and our needs satisfied by somebody's achievements. And the question is, will we depend on Christ's achievements or our own? So how is your heart hoping to be satisfied? By what you have accomplished or by what God has accomplished? Are we more impressed by what we do for God or the things that God has done for us? What are you more amazed by, results or grace? It matters where our greatest hope is found. It matters that the foundation of our joy is salvation. And Jesus thinks that the greatest miracle is that unworthy and unrighteous sinners can become righteous children of God. He wants us to think the same. So as you are tempted in mission, in ministry, In your life, wherever you go, don't let your uh, focus shift to results-based pragmatism. Rest that Christ in his salvation offered as a gift has done more for you than you will ever do for him. So when we evangelize, when we meet to disciple others, when we have the hard conversations or patiently help the difficult person, We can do it all in the light of an unfading joy that isn't dependent on whether or not we can point to an immediate success. Christ has been successful. And because he is sovereign over all, he will continue to be successful according to his intentions and his purposes. And he graciously calls us to labor with him not to earn joy and approval, but because of joy and approval. And so as we move on in our text today, we're actually not moving very far. Everything in this passage today is happening in a single moment in time. Our next section begins in that same hour. And the joy continues. The 72 returned with joy, and now we get a glimpse into the mind, the prayer life, the inner thoughts of Jesus. And Jesus rejoices because the foundation of our salvation is God's gracious will. So let's pick up in verse 21 and see what Jesus is thankful for as his followers return. It says, in that same hour, he rejoiced in the Holy Spirit and said, I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and understanding and revealed them to little children. Yes, Father, for such was your gracious will. All things have been handed over to me by my father and no one knows who the son is except the father or who the father is except the son and anyone to whom the son chooses to reveal him. And so the disciples, they've come back rejoicing, but now Jesus rejoices. And this is a beautiful passage where we see a couple of really cool things. We see the Trinity in this moment In Jesus' prayer, Jesus is filled with joy by the Holy Spirit, and he prays to the Father. And in his prayer, we have Jesus thanking the Father for both hiding and revealing the gospel to people, and saying that no one knows who the Father is except the Son, and anyone to whom the Son chooses to reveal him. And so, while the sovereignty of God is present in multiple places throughout the scriptures, here we have it very clearly articulated by Jesus himself. And Jesus' response to God's sovereignty over revealing salvation is a bubbling over joy. He is excited about this. And lastly, this part concludes much like other passages that we've read recently, where Jesus over and over again is instructing us that to know him is to know the Father, that if you know Jesus, you know the Father. And so my prayer as I've been preparing this sermon for the last couple of weeks has been that we would rejoice. We would rejoice over what Jesus rejoices over. And I I don't mean in a passing way or in a fleeting way. I mean that it might change the level of joy that we have when we read the Bible, when we pray, when we evangelize, so that we might follow Jesus with grateful hearts in every area of our lives. I mentioned earlier that my, my son loves the game Minecraft. He builds and he creates And he rejoices over his creations. And I can rejoice with him. I can enter his joy as he opens his heart to me. And I can become joyful as I see what brings him joy through his eyes. And alternatively, I could say, you know, that's real nice, but I'm busy. Please stop bugging me, you little nugget. You know, I could do that. We've all done that. And so when our Lord and Savior rejoices over something, especially when we consider that the reason he's even heading to Jerusalem is to die. When joy is produced by the Holy Spirit, joy that is not dependent on circumstances, we should take note because we will need this kind of joy. Maybe you don't need it now, but you will. And when the Lord Jesus opens his heart to us and invites us to enter into his joy, we would be foolish to not. We would be missing out. And so my primary role here at the church is as a worship pastor. And and something I think a lot about is that the songs that we sing should help us to know right things about God. And more than that, at their best, they should help us also feel right things about God. They help us to rightly express our sorrows over sin, our longing for heaven, our joy at being restored to God through Jesus as he took the punishment for our sins and covered us in his righteousness. And So like a good song, I want us to rejoice with Christ today. That's been my prayer. I want us to rejoice as He rejoices in God's gracious will being worked in salvation. I want us to rejoice that God is sovereign over salvation because it will make our hearts grateful to God in a profound way and provide a fuel for worship that will not burn out. So let's turn again to verse 21. In that same hour, he rejoiced in the Holy Spirit and said, I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you've hidden these things from the wise and understanding and revealed them to little children. Yes, Father, for such was your gracious will. Now, anytime Jesus prays and it's been recorded, uh, it's pretty important. I want to point that out. And this is not only for our knowledge of its content, but in a practical sense, it's Wonderful because it helps us know how to pray ourselves. So let me ask you a question How did you learn how to pray? Did you learn at home with parents who prayed with you? Was there someone in your life who discipled you or mentored you in the faith? Are you really new to the practice of praying and you kind of don't know where to begin? Well, after being around the church for most of my life, I've become aware of the fact that people pray like the people who taught them how to pray. And so if you learn from somebody who is really casual in their praying to God, you probably follow in that, and you're probably very casual. You want authenticity in your speaking to God over anything else. If you learn to pray from somebody who is very reverent, and majestic in their language, well, your prayers might sound like they come from a different time. And you probably are praying in an elevated language too. If the person who taught you how to pray said, um, or just a lot, (laughs) as they pray, uh, while they were thinking about what to say next, you might just, um, pray like, um, just that. (laughs) You might. And I'm making fun, but I do it too, guys. Like, That's how I learned how to pray. Isn't it wonderful that we can learn how to pray from Jesus himself? And what I see here and in other places in scripture is that one good way to pray would mean that we pray to God the Father, the Lord of heaven and earth, in the Holy Spirit, through Jesus our Savior. And it's such a simple thing, but praying to God with a thoughtfulness about his triune nature, that he is one God in three persons, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, it will produce in us greater wonder, thankfulness, and even worship as we meditate on how each person of the Trinity has worked in our salvation and in our knowledge of God. And God's work in salvation is exactly what Jesus is praying about here. Again, Luke 10, 21 and 22. I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you've hidden these things from the wise and understanding and revealed them to little children. Yes, Father, for such was your gracious will. All things have been handed over to me by my Father. And no one knows who the Son is except the Father or who the Father is except the Son and anyone to whom the Son chooses to reveal him. So remember, Jesus is heading to Jerusalem to die in the place of unworthy sinners. And this is what he calls God's gracious will. Sin has separated us from God. We all suffered under its effects and we were all destined to die. We were all under God's wrath. As Romans three ten to 12 puts it, none is righteous, no, not one. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. You know, we can only be saved by grace if no one deserves to be saved. For if someone could be saved by their own efforts, there would be no need for grace. There would be no need for Jesus to die in our place but no one is righteous, not one. And those who think they are, the wise and the understanding that Jesus is talking about here, they are in great danger. Anyone who thinks that they don't need God's grace is in great danger. Those who are proud of their self-righteous works will be judged by them. Those who live as if there is no God will not be rescued by him those who believe there is no need to be saved from the eternal consequences of sin will not be. And as I was preparing for today, I read in a commentary a very, very sobering thought. The quote says, when men are eternally lost, it is because they have chosen to reject God's revelation and his provision for salvation in Jesus Christ. Why do lost sinners go to hell? Well, they perish because they have not chosen God. And they also perish because God has not chosen to rescue them from their sin and rebellion. And in the simplest terms, men go to hell not only because God decreed it, but because they deserve it. And the truth is, is that without the mercy of God, we all deserved this. That's how bad the situation is. We have all been proud. We have all lived like there is no God. We have all believed in one way or another that we could save ourselves if we only had enough money or comfort or education or sex or power or status or influence. We'd be happy, satisfied, safe, and secure without God, the lords of our own lives. And when Jesus rejoices, That these things, that the salvation of God through Jesus is hidden from the wise and the understanding, he is rejoicing that sin will be punished. He is rejoicing that God is just. So think about the injustices in the world. Maybe think about the ways that our legal system can get things wrong. Think about the situations where no judgment, no sentencing will do. When a child is murdered, when a woman is brutally raped, when people are kidnapped and trafficked for years of their lives, when the verdicts come in and the perpetrators are caught and a jury decides their fate, do they bring back life? Is innocence restored? Are years given back? On the flip side, what about the injustice of a life being irreparably harmed by a wrongful conviction? I've recently heard stories of those, and they break my heart. Can you imagine if you were in that position? Thank God that he is just, and that sin is punished one day. In this world, our systems can fail to bring justice, but he will not. He is perfectly just. And now the wise and understanding in Jesus' day in this passage refer most directly to the Jewish leaders and the legal experts, the scribes and the Pharisees. We hear a lot about them in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. These were the ones who everyone thought had it all together. And they used their false righteousness to influence and control others through spiritual abuse and manipulation for the sake of monetary gain and power and just how it made them feel. They really did think that they were better than everyone else and that people needed to be like them to come near to God. These are also the very people who will plot and succeed in a plan to convince the Roman government to execute Jesus so that his message of salvation might be silenced. And Jesus thanks the Father that the gospel is hidden from them. And yet, in the same breath, Jesus thanks God for hiding as well as revealing, for such was the Father's gracious will. And though we all deserved wrath, Christ rejoices that there are names written in heaven, the names of his little children These are the disciples, the the 72 followers who just came back from their mission trip, those who responded to the gospel in the towns and the villages along the way. This is for us today. The word Christian just means little Christ. And the scripture often calls followers of Jesus, children of God. And Jesus is rejoicing because the children are getting the father those who know their need and see Christ as their only hope to those people Jesus is revealing the mercy of God this is the least being the greatest the ones who need God get God and Jesus rejoices over being the revealer of God's grace you know the author of hebrews says in hebrews 12:2 Jesus the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. What is Jesus' joy there? Doing the will of the Father and saving you because of his great love for you. And if Christ has revealed salvation to you, why? Why you? And there are a few reasons. And the first reason is that it brings glory to God. God is glorified in salvation. And 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 26 to 31 say, "'For consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise.'" We can't save ourselves. And God has chosen us to show the glories of his mercy, his power, and yes, his sovereignty, his love, his wisdom, his authority. He's done it to show off his goodness. The second reason is that if you're a believer, Jesus has, the reason Jesus has revealed salvation to you is that Jesus loves us. God has always chosen a people from him, for himself all throughout scripture. He calls the church his bride. He pursued us. He has wooed us. He lays down his life for us. He dies in our place for the will of the Father and because of his great love for us. And why does he love us? Because he does. That's why he loves us because he does. Just as a man and a woman choose to commit to love one another in a marriage, Christ has chosen the church as the object of his love. He has chosen to love you, and he will love you. Ephesians 5, 25 to 29 says, Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of, of water with the world, so that word so that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing that she might be holy and without blemish. And in the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself, for no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes it and cherishes it just as Christ does the church." Going on with God's love, Romans 5 8 says God shows his love for us that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Christ died for us, his church, his little children, not only because not only before we'd done anything good, but while we were still far off from him and actively pursuing sin. And first John 4 9 through 10 it says, in this the love of God was made manifest among us, that God sent his only son into the world so that we might live through him. And this is love, not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation, the substitute for our sins. Thanks be to God for his choosing love. We have done nothing to deserve it. And if you think you have, think again. We don't obey God for the sake of receiving blessings. We obey because we are already blessed. God doesn't owe you something for your good behavior. He's not a genie we can conjure with our works or the right incantation. We love him because he loved us first. You've got to get the order right. There is great joy in obedience and in discipleship, in giving and in service, but it will only be there in a way that lasts if those things are done in light of and in response to the salvation that you've already received. The last reason, Jesus reveals salvation to us because without his intervention, we could not be saved. Ephesians 2, 4-5 says that we are dead in sin, incapable of turning to God. It says, But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which He loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. And by grace you have been saved, and raised up with Him, and seated us with Him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. So that at the coming ages He might show the immeasurable riches of His grace in kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you've been saved through faith, and it is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared before him that we should walk in them. And in Jesus' own words, in John six forty four, no one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him and I will raise him up on that day. No one can come to the Father unless the Father draws them. Praise God if he has or if he is today. And our prayers for the lost should include praying that our merciful God would draw unbelievers to repentance. And again, Jesus says in John 65, he said, this is why I told you that no one can come to me unless it is granted Him by the Father. Lastly, in Philippians 1.6, and I know I've had a Bible barrage here today. Philippians 1.6 says, I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. Who begins the good work? Who do we hope will complete what he started? If our salvation depended on us, on our works and our faithfulness, we would always be looking over our spiritual shoulder, wondering if an angry God is behind us. Jesus is the one who began the good work. He's the one who will bring it to completion. He has already taken all the wrath of God for those who put their trust in him. There is no wrath left. And we can grow in our relationship with the Father, stumbling like children towards the goal, with faith instead of fear because of Jesus. Jesus is the founder and perfecter of our faith because like it says in our passage today in Luke 22, 10, 22, all things have been handed over to me by my Father. And no one knows who the Son is except the Father or who the Father is except the Son and anyone to whom the Son chooses to reveal him. The father reveals the son. The son reveals the father. And we are blessed that be- because to know Jesus is to know the father. To be restored through Jesus is to have your name written in heaven by the Lord of heaven and earth. Praise God for his mercy to us. And this language that we just read may seem familiar. Language like this has come up two other times in our study of Luke. In Luke nine forty-eight, and he said to them, whoever receives this child in my name receives me. Whoever receives me receives him who sent me. For he who is least among you all is the one who is great. Those who receive Jesus get the Father because Jesus and the Father are one. In Luke 10, 16, it goes on. The one who hears you talking to the disciples hears me. And the one who rejects you rejects me. And the one who rejects me rejects him who sent me. To reject Jesus is to reject the Father because Jesus and the Father are one. And again in our text today, Luke 22, all things have been handed over to me by my Father and no one knows who the Son is except the Father or who the Father is except the Son, and anyone to whom the Son chooses to reveal him. To see the Son is to have the Son revealed. And if the Son is revealed to you, you know the Father. You know his heart. You know his mercy. Today is the day of salvation. Every time the gospel is preached, people are either amazed by the grace of God, or they think that they would do things better if they were in his position. And through Jesus, God is both just and the justifier. All sins are dealt with. They're dealt with as they must be for God to be righteous. And yet, the Father shows mercy to everyone who humbles themselves, confesses their sin, and trusts in Christ to be their righteousness. This is what faith is, and it is a gift from God. Today, the joy of having your sins forgiven and being restored to God has been set before you. And I want to encourage you that if a message like this is hard for you, before you worry about all the hypothetical ways that you don't understand or may not like the idea of God's sovereignty and salvation, understand this, that to walk away from what Christ offers would be your choice, and your desire. while I would plead with you and say that your decision has eternal consequences that are far more serious than you may have thought through, it really is you that is making this decision. You're not a robot. You're not a pawn in a game. Trusting in Christ for your salvation is something you actually have to do. On the other side, if you come to God in repentance, convicted of sin by the Holy Spirit, trusting in your heart that Jesus has died and paid the penalty for your sin and that in his name you can be forgiven and restored to God, that is a miracle of the highest order orchestrated by the gracious will of the Father himself because of his love for you. And this was Jesus' joy as he laid down his life on the cross in your place. And that should bring a joy that lasts forever because Jesus has done something in our hearts that we could not have done on our own. Let's finish our passage for today. If you're checking your clock, don't worry, we'll be done shortly. The last part of our text follows Jesus' prayer and is an encouragement to his disciples and to us today. I turn to Luke ten, twenty three, and 24. Then turning to the disciples, he said privately, blessed are the eyes that see what you see. For I tell you that many prophets and kings desired to see what you see and did not see it, and to hear what you hear and did not hear it. Our last point for today is that God's grace is most clearly seen in Jesus have you ever been in the right place at the right time? Some seemingly random events came together and had an impact on your life from that moment on. Maybe it has to do with meeting your spouse or the person you're dating. Maybe it has to do with your own story of salvation and a, a single conversation with a friend or a, a coworker or a parent and it changed everything for you. And for me it has to do with not having my two front teeth in fourth grade. Because in fourth grade in the New York City public schools, that's when you took a test to see if you had enough musical aptitude to be a part of the band classes. And somehow I passed the test. But what happened was that the band teacher, Mr. Kaspari, he had everybody write down on a piece of paper the three instruments that you were most interested in playing. Uh, the first being the one you wanted to play the most, and the third being the one you wanted to play the least. And my first choice was saxophone, uh, which I mean our worship band would be a whole lot cooler and weirder if I played the saxophone. Um, my second instrument was trumpet. My third pick was the drums. And uh, with no front teeth in fourth grade, I simply could not play any instruments that you had to you know, blow into. My mouth could not... It couldn't form the right shape. It's called an embouchure. Um Stephen Kasun knows. He played sax. <laughs> from that point on, uh, so from that point on, I played the drums. I played in concert bands and jazz bands and marching bands and garage bands and worship bands for the next 11 years. My love for music grew. I went to a music college on a partial scholarship. While I was there, I understood the gospel clearly. It was revealed to me I understood and I was saved immediately, indelibly. I was changed. And the Lord put a desire in my heart to minister in churches. And so I changed schools. I left the music school. I went to receive training and got a full scholarship. I met my wife at the new school on a blind date, no less. (laughs) And now 15 years later, we have three kids. Somehow I ended up in Missoula, Montana, Preaching, Which is something I never thought I'd ever be doing. Somehow it's all because I didn't have my front two teeth in fourth grade. God's sovereignty is weird. <laughs> I'm sure you have your own stories of how he's taken you through situations that you never imagined to bring you to where you are today. The point of my story is that Jesus rejoices because the disciples are in the right place at the right time. You cannot forget that these are, for the most part, a bunch of uneducated fishermen. And these people are no different than you and me. And yet here they are walking the earth with God in the flesh, seeing Satan's kingdom crumble before their eyes and seeing the kingdom of God and all its majesty break into the earth. How cool is that? To know Jesus is to know the Father, and these guys got to walk and eat with him daily. And Jesus tells them, Blessed are the eyes that see what you see. For I tell you that many prophets and kings desired to see what you see and did not see it, and to hear what you hear and did not hear it. Prophets and kings. You know, in the Jewish tradition, there's literally no more of a privileged and revered class of people than the prophets and the kings. And yet, who does the good news of salvation come to? Peter, (laughs) John, James, a bunch of fishermen. Matthew, a tax collector, no one liked him. Simon, a religious zealot, he'd cut you. (laughs) There are no prophets, no kings in this group. These are dangerous, rabble-rousing, blue-collar people. And there are no prophets and kings in the room with us today. But I can tell you, full of faith in the power of God and in the message of new life that is held out for us in the gospel of Jesus, we are in even more of a privileged position than the disciples. We know the whole story. We see how God's grace is most clearly seen in Jesus We know that Jesus really does conquer sin and death, and we know that all he requires of us to enter his kingdom is faith. As we close, my applications today are simple. Believe and rejoice. For those who've been believers for a long time, believe again. Believe again and rejoice. Believe all the more and rejoice. Marvel and see Jesus for who he is. God's grace to us is most clearly seen in Jesus, our Lord and Savior, and the only one who could make things right between us and God. By living a perfectly obedient life that we could not live, by taking the punishment that we deserved, and in love granting to us his righteousness so that we might draw near to God and enjoy him forever. However you feel about God's sovereignty and salvation, understand that today you have an opportunity to turn to Christ. You've heard that trusting in Jesus is the solution for our problem with sin and that through him we can live lives that are pleasing to God and full of joy. Turn to Christ and find him faithful. Turn again and again and renew your joy again and again. If you turn to Christ, Jesus promises that he will never turn away from you. Jesus rejoices over our salvation and he will carry us through every trial and struggle so that we might arrive at the destination of joy forevermore. And We all need help with this. Not only does the living God want to help you grow in your relationship with him, promising that his very spirit will be with you, Every member of this church wants to help you. If you need help or have questions, I or anyone who has been a believer for a while would love to talk with you. Here's another thought. If you're tired and weary, rest and rejoice. Rest in knowing that Jesus has done everything required to save sinners and restore us to God. And don't compare your growth to anyone's. Your story will be different than everyone else's. And the only thing that will be the same between all of us is that God will get all of the glory for the salvation he accomplished. Jesus rejoices over salvation. And he is the sovereign God who has written our names in heaven from before the foundation of the world. And when we remember this, live in light of it, it provides an indestructible bedrock of joy. Because of God's sovereignty and salvation, <clears throat> we can be completely sure that one day everything will be made right. One day we will see Jesus and our struggle with sin will end And while this life will take us to wonderful and difficult places that we would have never expected to go, there is nothing that catches our Heavenly Father by surprise. And bit by bit, He's using all of it to conform us more and more into the likeness of His Son for our good and His glory as He prepares us for a life of endless joy in eternity with Him. Amen. Let's pray. Father God... We thank you uh, just for the work that you've done in our hearts. Lord, that while we were still sinners, you died for us. Lord, that you have uh, removed our heart of stone and given us a heart of flesh so that we might believe and live lives that are pleasing to you. Lord, we thank you for all of the ways that you have uh, uh, married what seemed impossible where you have been able to punish all sin and yet still be a merciful God. So God, I pray for our faith, wherever it may be, whether it is simply a seed in the ground or whether we are, have been following you for a long time. Lord, I pray that in either uh, case that we would be encouraged to grow. Lord, that we wouldn't be looking over our shoulders Lord, wondering if uh, you're pleased with us or not. Lord, if we keep coming to you with faith and repentance, God, we can be sure that he who began a good work in us will be faithful to complete it. And God, we thank you for the assurance that that brings. Lord, we thank you that our names are written in heaven. And Lord, I pray for those who don't know you. Lord, I pray that you'd have mercy on them, that you'd open their eyes, that you would reveal more and more of yourself to them, that they might know you and believe. God, I pray through conversations we have as church members with our neighbors and our coworkers and people in our community, Lord, have mercy so that hearts might be turned to Christ. And it's in Jesus' name we pray, amen.